Thank you very much. <clears throat> I'm <clears throat> just trying to find how to share my screen at the moment. Have you got it? Do you see it on the bottom of Zoom? There should be a share screen arrow in the middle. I've got it. Perfect. <laughs> right. A, how to fix a broken planet. An emergency healthcare plan for planet Earth. Now, among the world's many pressing health needs, the most urgent of all is a plan for human survival. At present, no nation or international body has one. What we currently have is a chaotic road to avoidable disaster, driven by 10 vast interconnected threats, which are all the result of human activity. These threats have been carefully documented by science over more than 50 years. They show that the human capacity to inflict mass harm on ourselves, on our health and on our well-being, and that of the planet as a whole, has increased exponentially since World War II. Collectively, they menace the future of human civilization and certainly its health, well-being and its ability to survive. They are all driven at core by the same four factors, overpopulation, overconsumption, overpollution, and money. The science is in. We've wiped out two thirds of the world's large animals. Several studies show that extinction rates are now more than a thousand times above the normal level. Humans and our livestock make up 96% of all the life on land. We are wiping out forests, wetlands, grasslands and ocean life at rates never before seen. And we are creating new deserts, toxic and uninhabitable regions. We are in effect collapsing the Earth's life support system, the very thing that keeps us alive and healthy. We're losing fresh water topsoil, fish, forests, and other key resources at appalling rates. Human consumption of material resources is skyrocketing. Back in the 1970s, it was 29 billion tonnes a year. That's for all of us. It's risen to 101 billion tonnes a year last year, and it's on track to reach 170 billion tonnes by 2050. All those resources come at a huge cost to our own health and our well-being because of the damage and the pollution that they cause. There is already a world water crisis and it can only grow more severe. There is a crisis in our farming soils, which nobody wants to recognize. We are felling forests and clearing land as if there were no tomorrow, as may very well become the case. We are killing large parts of the oceans and we now use an entire year's worth of the Earth's resources every seven months. We are poisoning everyone and everything on the planet every day, including our children. Our chemical emissions at over 200 billion tonnes a year are our biggest and worst impact on the planet, its health and on our own health. You see my talk on this at the last uh, Real Truth About Health conference last year. 
Human chemical emissions are five times larger than our climate emissions, and they kill, according to the World Health Organization, 13.7 million people every single year. That's one in four human deaths are now attributable to the chemical mess that we've unleashed. They cause about 600 million years of lost human life every, every year. Now, those are people who are just sickened by this, not necessarily people who are dead from it. This is the worst act of preventable homicide in human history. Now, the death toll is twice that of World War II, for example. Yet few people and few governments seem serious about stopping it. The flood of chemicals, nerve poisons especially, is damaging our children's brains. And this may be a reason why human IQ is now falling steadily worldwide and brain diseases are on the increase. And the brain is the most chemically sensitive organ in our body. Uh, it gets hit by everything that's in our environment, everything we inhale, everything we eat or ingest, um, the stuff that comes through our skin. Uh, you can't avoid these things. They're, they're getting into us all the time. We are constructing weapons that can better obliterate us many times over. World spending on new weapons reached $2.24 trillion a year this year. That's more than a quarter of the total global healthcare budget. So we're spending nearly a quarter as much as we spend on health on better ways to kill ourselves. The doomsday clock was recently reset at 90 seconds to midnight, which is the highest risk level since Hiroshima. Now, even a small nuclear war involving say 50 to 100 warheads would kill up to 2 billion people in the famines that followed the nuclear winter. So even non-combatant nations who are right out of it would be very badly affected by this. All countries, in fact, would experience food and health crises if somebody pressed the nuclear trigger in however small a fashion. Now, two thirds of the nations of the earth want nukes banned, but one third of nations want to keep them. Most women want nukes banned, but quite a few men want to keep them. We are shaping a climate that will render the earth largely uninhabitable within a few generations. Climate emissions are still rising strongly, despite all the talk about containing them, about getting back to zero. They will take us past plus two degrees by 2050, maybe as early as 2030, and plus four degrees by 2100. Now, as an agricultural writer, I can tell you, at three to four degrees, world food and water supplies will collapse. And scientific predictions suggest that fewer than 1 billion human beings, that's one in 10, will actually survive. We humans are triggering a vast number of tipping points, which are causing the earth itself to yield more carbon emissions. And there is absolutely no stopping these. There's nothing we can do to prevent them once they're underway. Most frightening of all are the 5 trillion tonnes of methane gas, which is locked into tundra, peat swamps, and the seabed, and is now starting to vent. In the Arctic Oceans, the Canadian tundra, and so on, the gas is rising, and it's coming into the, into the atmosphere, and methane has 30 to 80 times 
the, the heat trapping power of carbon dioxide. So this is a very deadly development. We are building dangerous new technologies over which society has no control. You may have seen the headlines in the last few days about artificial intelligence, how within a matter of years, it, it is likely that we, it will become impossible for us to tell the difference between an artificially generated figure and a real human being. So all sorts of words could be put in people's mouths without us, the audience, knowing what is going on. Like coal and industrial agriculture before them, artificial intelligence, robotics, nanotechnology, biotechnology, and global surveillance have the potential to do terrible damage if used excessively or malignantly. And at present, there is no way for society to control these monsters. They are off the leash and they are coming to get us. Several of them, like nanopollution and gain-of-function biotech, have dire consequences for our health and for that of the planet. Now, we currently throw away nearly half our food and we ruin the planet trying to grow more. This means that half our farmers, up to half our farmers, are feeding nobody. It's going to landfill. The present food system is not sustainable because it is destroying the very soils, the water, the climate, and the ecology on which it depends. However, global demand for food is expected to double by the 2060s. So food security is in fact the Achilles heel of modern civilization, something which very few governments appear to grasp. Well, they grasp it in Africa, but not in the West. There is an urgent need to completely rethink the way we humans produce food. I mean, agriculture, wonderful technology, much though we love it, it's a stone age technology. We need new ways to produce food that are sustainable and climate proof. The world population has tripled in the last 75 years. Every year we try to cram another 80 million people into lifeboat Earth, and this is driving all of the other threats. However, human fertility is declining. This is the good news. Fertility is declining in most countries on Earth, thanks to women. Peak population of about 10 billion people could possibly be reached in the 2060s, and a slow decline begin thereafter. However, one third of a billion people are now fleeing from overcrowded countries into more stable ones every year. And there are warnings that the human tide could exceed a billion. So there are 100 million refugees who are displaced by war and famine and drought and so forth. And on top of that, there's about a quarter of a billion people who are just simply seeking a better, safer life than what they know is happening in their own countries. Now, the point is that when Human migration gets up to a billion. There is no country on earth whose borders can sustain such a tsunami. Somehow, we have to get the human population back in line with what the earth itself can realistically carry in the long run. There have been seven pandemics, as I'm sure you're aware, since the year 2000. 
and there is mounting concern now about an eighth, the potential transfer of avian flu to human beings. All these pandemics are the result of human behavior. Overpopulation, mass travel, overcrowded cities, dense gathering places like schools, sports arenas, cruise liners and nightclubs all help to spread disease. So it's our very habits that are the main driver of pandemic disease. Science is also persisting in carrying out some very dangerous and foolish experiments designed to artificially create more deadly viruses. And these are without societal or ethical oversight. We are now unleashing a new plague, usually from a ruined ecosystem, every two to three years and spreading it worldwide like wildfire. 90 new diseases have in fact crossed from animals to people in the last 75 years, although of course not all of these became pandemic. The World Health Organization warns that bigger and worse plagues than COVID are likely. And collectively, the world is far from doing enough to prevent them. And we lie constantly and continually to ourselves about it all. The fossil fuel sector has established purpose-built lie factories and every year spends billions of dollars poisoning the well of public information. Lying and spreading confusion about the climate and the environment and other corporate sectors are copying them. Media organizations that specialize in spreading lies have arisen. They have discovered that misinformation is a great way to make money because there are large audiences of people who for whatever reason prefer lies to truth. And this is attracting corporate advertisers who are thus paying for the lies to be spread further and faster. Now, all of this is polluting civil debate in democracies and autocracies alike around the world and on social media, leading to widespread confusion in the populace and paralysis in government. The decline in human intelligence means that more and more citizens are unable to distinguish between truth and fiction. This is undermining democracy and assuring bad government. The inability to tell truth from reality means that more and more humans are unfit for survival because they simply do not understand what is going on or how to fix it. Instead, they repose their faith in utter nonsense. So for humanity, misinformation could become as deadly in the long run as a nuclear war or climate change, a point which is insufficiently understood by governments or society at large. Now, none of these are the actions of a wise or a healthy species, or even maybe an intelligent one. A creature that wanted to survive would not devote most of its energy and most of its wealth to activities that undermine its health and its chances of survival. Yet humans today are doing just that. Our governments and our corporations seem paralyzed unable to grasp the magnitude of the overwhelming interlinked risks that are engulfing us. 
they certainly lack the essential skills to do so. As a result, humanity is just spinning our wheels <clears throat> instead of getting on with solving our problems. The 10 mega threats that I have listed are all connected. They cannot be separated. They all have solutions. Now that's the important point, that's the good news. We know how to solve all of these things, but they must be solved all together at the same time. Solving them one at a time will not work. And there are some solutions of one threat that will make other threats worse. We have to avoid that. Now, as I said, all of them are consequences of the sheer scale of the human enterprise, overpopulation, overconsumption, overpollution, and money are the chief drivers. Mostly, they stem from the 101 billion tonnes of resources that we now devour to support our lifestyle. So that's 12 tonnes of stuff that every single one of us on Earth uses every year to support that lifestyle. And the damage this process is causing to the health of the entire planet and ourselves. Now, the good news is that solutions to all these threats already exist. And that's why I wrote How to Fix a Broken Planet. So that people will know that complex problem, though it may seem, it is amenable to solution. And so people will also know that there is a lot that we can each do in our own lives as individuals, as well as members of a larger society. These threats must all be solved in ways that do not generate fresh perils or make other threats worse. We have the brains and we have the technology to save ourselves. The bad news is we do not have the governments, the leadership or the will to do so. No government on earth has a plan for overcoming these risks and securing the, the, uh, the human future as the Council for the Human Future has warned. Most of them, most governments and many people are not aware that such a threat or, or such a need exists. So poorly do they understand the messages that science has been delivering to them over the last 50 years. And so effectively have selfish interest managed to mislead, confuse and frustrate action. In the book, I explain the scientific understanding of these risks, but more importantly, I list all the main solutions which governments, companies and individuals can take in their work and in their own lives to make ours a safer, healthier and more sustainable world. This amounts to a first draft for a world plan of action for human survival. Now, it isn't the complete answer. No short book could provide that. And I hasten to add, these are not my ideas. They are those of scientists worldwide, the best scientists, who have thought deeply about these issues over decades. It is therefore a summary, an outline of what the world's wisest minds now consider we must do together in order to survive. It shows that thinking and acting our way out of the biggest crisis ever to face humanity in the million years of its history is entirely possible. Furthermore, it is positive. It encourages hope, prosperity, healing, 
and opportunity. Among the several hundred solutions proffered for policymakers, governments, companies, groups, and individuals, here are my top dozen, just as examples. They should not surprise anyone who has considered our situation objectively. First of all, we need an Earth System Treaty, addressing all the catastrophic risks and open to everybody, not just nations, but every person to sign. An Earth System Treaty is a legal compact, a legal instrument signed by nations and every willing individual that commits all of us to work for a safe, healthy, habitable planet for our children and their grandchildren. It's a planet where humans live within the rational, safe boundaries defined by science, not the dangerous, toxic, unplanned world defined by greedy, uncaring enterprises. It is an agreement to work together to overcome each of the catastrophic threats that are the result of our own actions, but whose consequences now cannot be avoided. There is already since 2021, a United Nations Treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. So far, 92 countries have signed it and a further 68 have ratified it or agreed to it. But 70 countries, including all the nuclear powers, still cling to their support for potential human annihilation. This is not good for our health. Those who study the issue of nuclear weapons are agreed that if the world has them, it will use them sooner or later. Already, the major nuclear powers are trying to convince themselves that the limited use of nukes is possible without escalating into a full-blown world holocaust. This is a dangerous fantasy because there have been absolutely scores of nuclear mistakes made in the last 70 years to testify that mistakes happen. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists has set the doomsday clock at 90 seconds to midnight, and that's the highest danger level ever. And that is because of recent advances in nuclear weapons technology and the growing conviction among the warrior class that they can be safely used. Quite simply, if humanity is to survive a civilization-shattering conflict during this century and potential annihilation, then every country on Earth must agree to eliminate these weapons and all their technology. There is no intermediate position. Three, an end to the use of fossil fuels to stem both climate change and global poisoning. Now, leading climate scientists now consider that humanity must end its use of all fossil fuels. That's oil, coal, gas, tar sands, you name it. By 2030, or face an out of control climate running to a hothouse earth. A hothouse earth is an earth that we cannot inhabit. Gradual reform and slow transition will not work. Current greenhouse policies are far from what is needed in, in almost all nations. So without a goal of ending fossil fuel use, the soaring costs of climatic turbulence will destroy the world economy and kill millions. However, a bonus from eliminating fossil fuels is that the largest source of poisons on the planet 
the one that's killing 14 million people a year, will also be eliminated. So much of the sickness that is discussed at this conference, the cause of it will be removed. Thus, ending the use of fossil fuels is the greatest public health measure we could possibly take, greater even than supplying clean water to everyone. It would represent the biggest advance in human health and well-being in history, and it needs to be considered in that light as well as uh, fixing the climate. And furthermore, it is entirely feasible. Clean energy, green chemistry, zero waste, green oil, hydrogen and plant-based medicines are already available and can replace fossil fuels in most applications, whatever the oil lobby may be telling you. A circular world economy, which wastes nothing and reuses everything, is the answer to the looming scarcity of key resources. Now, for most of our history, we humans recycled our wastes, nutrients especially. I'm a Homeric scholar and Odysseus in the Odyssey, uh, basically when he got home at the end of the Trojan War, um, he walked past his old dog who was sitting on the dung heap outside the door of his house. This is 3,000 years ago, right? But there was a dung heap outside which contained all the kitchen waste and the crop waste, things that people threw away. And every year they forked that back onto the fields that grew their food for the next year, onto the olive trees and things like that. So people have been recycling nutrients for a long time. In the 20th century, we stopped doing that. We forgot how to recycle. We have got to learn it again. When the human population begins to shrink in the middle of this century, there will never be a need to open another mine. Think about that for a moment, because every single mineral and source of energy that we need will be available in the waste stream. And you will be able to extract it from the waste stream far cheaper than you can get it from digging a hole in the ground. So we have to re-extract and reuse all of the minerals and uh, building materials and things like that. Um, and it's already happening. I mean, your, your smartphone is recycled. The, the 50 or 60 um, minerals in that smartphone are being reused. It happens to your aluminium drink can, all of those things. Let's just apply that principle to everything that we use. And then we can live in harmony with the earth. Furthermore, as we recycle more, we move our economy out of its focus on producing material goods and into a focus on ideas. That is the creative economy where jobs shift from making things to doing things and imagining things. The human mind is inexhaustible, right? So there's no end to the creative economy, whereas a material economy, there's an end when the things it uses run out when the timber runs out or when the, when the oil or coal runs out or the metals run out. The creative economy uses far less energy. It causes less pollution and sickness. It provides greater happiness and quality of life. It lifts us out of the grubby industrial existence that we've had for the last hundred years to a healthier, more satisfying plane. Likewise, renewable food for everyone which will sustain all of humanity, and it will dramatically reduce the threat of war. Because two thirds of all wars basically 
uh, fought as a result of arguments over food, land, and water. That's what's going on in Africa today. The renewable food revolution is going to be bigger and more exciting even than the renewable energy revolution. It's going to catch on faster. It's going to employ far more people. Um, you know, and it's going to engage people's enthusiasm and interest. And these are some examples of, of um, you know, people's concepts for the renewable food revolution. It has three legs to it because we can't on, go on using the Stone Age system called agriculture. First of all, we have to go back to regenerative agriculture. That is a farming system that restores, repairs and cares for the environment in which it exists. Secondly, we need urban food production. And that is a system that takes all the nutrients and all the water that are currently being wasted by our huge cities. And bear in mind that there is no city on earth that can actually feed itself. Uh, basically turns those nutrients and water back into renewable climate-proof food. So that the cities end up largely feeding themselves. And finally, deep ocean aquaculture. Now, this is a new technology, and it's just coming in. But basically, the farming, the mass farming of sea plants and fish in very large-scale ocean ranches uh, away from the coasts uh, can provide an inexhaustible source of nutrition for humanity, one that doesn't pollute, um, one that doesn't poison the oceans. Unlike coastal aquaculture, which does concentrate nutrients and chemicals, close to the coast and it poisons the uh, the water column. Deep ocean aquaculture does not cause those problems. It's becoming more and more feasible and there are some wonderful ideas out there for how we do this. Deep oceans, the deep oceans can supply at least a third of the food that humanity needs. So each of these methods, regenerative agriculture, urban food production and deep ocean aquaculture can provide one third of the world's Need, food needs sustainably and in largely climate proof conditions. And that is going to lead to a dramatic improvement in human health because there's going to be a much higher proportion of fresh, nutritious plant foods in the diet. Now, if we don't need to farm any longer, we can turn half the earth back into wild wilderness. A stewards of the earth plan for the rewilding of half the earth, as suggested by E.O. Wilson, run by farmers and indigenous people, and that there's a billion small farmers at the moment who are being kicked off their farms by the big supermarket chains and industrial food combines. And there's half a billion indigenous people around the world who simply want to put their environments back. So there's one and a half billion people ready to do this. All we need to do is fund them. If we implement the renewable food revolution that I've described to you, and we grow two thirds of our food in the cities and the deep oceans, we can return more than half of the world's land area to forests, wetlands, grasslands, and woodlands. And that is going to help to reverse the sixth extinction of wild animals, insects, and birds. It is a complete win-win. To manage this transition, we can make use of the skills and the wisdom of a billion small farmers who are currently being destroyed by the industrial food system. 
and half a billion indigenous people worldwide who love and understand their own environment. So instead of wasting $2 trillion a year on bigger, better, nastier weapons to kill ourselves, we could pay these farmers and native people to repair the damage to global landscapes caused by agriculture, climate, and mindless development. This is the stewards of the earth idea. So let's heal the planet by putting back all the many living things that we have so thoughtlessly eliminated, and it will be the greatest planetary health initiative ever. To deal with the toxicity problem, we need to clean up the earth plan including a new human right not to be poisoned. We need to end the mass poisoning of humans by other humans and the horrific damage that we are inflicting on the health of our species and on our children. And to do that, we need to build a new world alliance of organizations, and there are already many of them, who are dedicated to cleaning up our planet, our food supply, our air, our water, our homes, and our consumer goods. Now, because global uh, poisoning emissions are five times larger than climate emissions, we need to create a body like the IPCC for chemicals. That is a global body to register, monitor, and test the safety of all the 350,000 chemicals that we now use. Now, there is no chem safety testing for most of these chemicals at the moment, and that's a, a dreadful oversight. We don't know what is bad for us. We need a body that will measure their impact on our health. Now this is going on sporadically in universities around the planet, but nobody is looking at the big picture. So it's a really alarming gap in our understanding of ourselves and of the planet. Now, up until the 19th century, all of our ancestors, every single one of them, enjoyed a relatively clean, chemically unpolluted world, a far less toxic world than the one we've made today. And I believe we too should have such a right. We need to introduce into the Universal Declaration of Human Rights a right not to be poisoned. Only such a right will focus our governments and corporations on their responsibility not to kill us. Number eight, we need a world population plan, providing voluntary family planning for all. You know, for just the cost of one single nuclear submarine, we could provide family planning to every member, to every family on Earth, and so end the population explosion. Now, family planning is entirely voluntary. No compulsion is involved. It provides the advice, contraception, and healthcare necessary for families to plan their own size. Voluntary reduction of the human population is both feasible and far preferable to the catastrophic crash caused by famines, pandemics, and wars, which will follow our overpopulation of the planet. Wise women around the world are already doing it. They have cut the birth rate from 4.4 babies per woman down to 2.4, and it is still going down. Okay, within, within a matter of years, it will be below 2.1, below replacement. 17 countries worldwide are actually shrinking 
in their population size. And despite all the panic by economists and others, they haven't fallen over or collapsed. You can shrink a country and still have growth in its creative economy. So, you know, this is not something to be feared. Uh, it can be done. And it will be greatly aided by the philosophy of one child fewer. That's a, a philosophy where people say, well, if I was going to have three children, I'll, I'll only have two. If I was going to have two, I'll only have one, and so on. So people voluntarily decide that they will have one fewer baby. As well, I might add, as the growing trend, and this is a, a marked trend in places like Japan and China and North America, um, for young people to say, we want no children at all. We fear the world into which we would bring our children. So we will just we will have none at all. And that's that's a very largely growing component of, of the youth opinion these days. We need to pay attention to it and we need to honor it. Number nine, we need a world pandemic plan to prevent and arrest the uncontrolled spread of disease by human behavior. The best thing we can possibly do to prevent future pandemics is reduce the size of the human population, because that's it's packing people together that causes disease to spread, and to re restore the natural world that we are ravaging at the moment, because that's where a lot of the new diseases are coming from. But we also need to change our behaviors that are conducive to the spread of disease. And that means far less mass travel, better ventilation in our buildings, less use of mass facilities where diseases can be transmitted from cruise liners to sports arenas and childminding centers. Now, greedy, selfish, and thoughtless people will howl at having their toys taken away. But does the right to travel, for example, include the right to kill others by spreading disease? Those are the sorts of ethical issues we need to ponder. Now, humans have survived and done very well for a million years without all of these toys. We can do so again, if it is a question of survival. And, you know, we're traveling today, aren't we? We're traveling on this Zoom conference from all over the world. I'm addressing you from Canberra in Australia. Uh, you know, so humans can travel without leaving home. It's perfectly feasible. And you can have all the fun and, and even more, uh, see even more sights than you can if you were in a coach or a, or a, or a bus. We also need a, a pa better pandemic early warning system. Uh, the WHO has said that. And we need to stop scientists from making deadly new viruses for fun or money or whatever reason. Number 10, we need a global technology convention to oversee all the powerful new technologies before they are put to dangerous misuse. Now, if we have learned nothing from the use of coal and agriculture, industrial agriculture, it is that we need to be very cautious about the potential damage that can be caused by uncontrolled use of new technologies, such as AI, such as nanotechnology, which is a, a new form of pollution. I mean, uh, at the moment, every single one of us is a, is a guinea pig in a huge nanotech experiment. These microscopic particles are getting into the human blood supply. They're getting into babies in the womb. They're getting into our brains. 
you know, that and plastic particles and things like that. So we're creating huge health problems for the future, which we don't even understand at the moment. Surely, surely we should adopt the precautionary principle with regard to technologies like this, rather than just unleashing them everywhere. Now, these technologies cannot be controlled one by one or by individual nations. I mean, if you had the most perfect regulation in the United States, it still would not protect you from these things coming in, in imports or on the wind or whatever it is. So individual countries having good laws is not the answer here. We, we do need that, but we also need a global body to oversee the development of all technologies and, and basically assess the harms they might cause as well as the benefits that they can deliver. Because, you know, when you talk to scientists and technologists who are developing them, they always tell you about the good stuff. They, they never tell you about the downsides, right? And indeed, many of them are not paid to research the, the, the downsides or the bad effects. And even if a, a technology has good effects, there is nothing to stop a bad person or a bad organisation or a criminal organisation or a rogue state from misusing it and turning it against us. So we need a world body to regulate all human technology now because it catches fire so very, very quickly um, and it changes all our lives. So we need this world oversight body that looks into all of these things and it warns us about the dangers in good time to act. Number 11, we need a World Truth Commission to expose the liars and their lies to public shame. Throughout history, one of the most effective ways to control rascals has been the public exposure and shaming. With the spread of misinformation now crippling government and endangering the human future, we need a world body to expose the liars and the wrongdoers. A World Truth Commission would be a body charged with fact-checking the more outrageous claims of politicians, billionaires, corporations, and other people in power, and exposing those who abuse their position by misleading the public. And unless you've got an umpire, a referee, somebody calling the shots on these people, they're going to go on lying to us through the media, through social media, and so on, and we're never going to know the difference. We need to have them fact-checked for honesty and integrity, because clearly honesty and integrity do not exist uh, at the highest level of most of our corporations and governments at the moment. We also need a world body, which I call the World Integrity Commission, which can tell us which corporations and which websites can you trust. Now, as individuals, you can't tell from looking at a website whether it's telling you the truth or not. You have to do an awful lot of background research, and most people don't have the time to do that. So we need a body that gives you a gold seal if you're a truthful organisation and no seal at all if you're a dishonest organisation. So basically that, you know, we, we, we need a way of calibrating the honesty and integrity of people who are promulgating information or manufacturing things or whatever. We need it for universities, for example. Are they, are they telling us the truth or are they just working for industry? So, you know, we, 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 def we desperately need 
a fact-checking commission that can that can actually validate the integrity and truthfulness and honesty of organizations so that the public knows who they can trust and who they can't, whose products to buy and whose products to shun. Now, if you do that, that will apply marketplace discipline to corporations that are doing the wrong thing. So I, I believe that that is going to really influence how people buy. And because, you know, you vote several times a day. Every time you spend a dollar, you are voting for the future and the health of your children and grandchildren. So if you bought a sustainable product, you're, you're increasing the, the, the chance of a healthy future for your grandchildren. If you bought an unsustainable product, you are decreasing their chances of surviving on an unhealthy planet. So this, this is, these are essential roles, and they need to happen at the global level so they are not polluted by domestic politics in nations. Number 12, we need an Earth standard currency to try to correct the rape of our planet by an infinite supply of otherwise non-existent money. Now, when humans disappear from the Earth, what will happen to all the money? Will it still be there lying in a big pile? No, it won't. It'll disappear with us. It's purely a figment of the human imagination. But water is real. Forests are real. Fish are real. The oceans are real. The climate is real. We are using imaginary currency to destroy things that are real. And if you have an imaginary currency, you can have as much of it as you like. Every time we get into trouble, you know, a bank fails or something like that, what do they do? They just print more money out of thin air. Banks and central banks create more money out of thin air. And this money then becomes a roulette chip, a gambling chip for all sorts of players, money marketeers and so forth to gamble with. It has no fixed value. So, you know, basically what we have is an infinite supply of money on a finite planet. And that means we're going to run out of planet long before we run out of money. An Earth standard currency, on the other hand, is not based on the say-so of governments, on central banks or, their or the wild gambles of the money market. It is based on scientific measurement of all the things that the Earth uses to support life. That is a breathable atmosphere, a healthy oceans and healthy forests, a clean environment, and so on. And you can measure these things scientifically. And if your money was based upon that, it would go up when you improve your management of the earth and it would go down as you mismanage the earth. So it would constitute a real signal to people uh, to get their act together and do more to protect the earth for their grandchildren. So it would make all of us investors in a safe, healthy, sustainable planet. Now, there are a great many other actions, and I list about 200 of them in the book, that can be taken and must be taken to mitigate the danger in which we now stand. As I say, the How to Fix a Broken Planet lists the best of them, and they're ideas from scientists, not from me. At the heart of all of this, as I stress, there is an Earth System Treaty, which is a legal agreement by all the world's people which commits all those who sign it to working for a habitable earth and a healthier human future by addressing all 10 
of the megathreats. The treaty would commit us to living within the safe planetary boundaries defined by Johann Rockström and his colleagues. The answers to the human emergency do not lie in business as usual, in government procrastination, in the corruption of public discourse, the, poisonous, the poisoning or overheating of an entire planet or the destruction of nature. They lie in employing the chief attribute which has saved, which has guaranteed human survival for over a million years, wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to read the future accurately and to take action in good time to achieve a better, safer, healthier outcome. Self-evidently, the world's governments, intent on the rivalries of yesterday, are not yet interested in this or able to achieve it. Instead, it must be driven by the wishes and concerns of 8 billion humans united in a desire for their grandchildren to survive on a world that hasn't been reduced to a charred ruin by human negligence and greed. Today, we have the means. By 2030, all 9 billion of us will be online. We can, for the first time in our history, join minds and have a conversation across an entire planet. That's that we're creating a planet-sized mind to think about all of these problems together. We can think together as a species, share ideas for what is to be done, encourage and uplift one another. Saving our common future will be, without a doubt, the greatest and noblest undertaking in the long ascent of human aspiration and achievement. It is a task worthy of us all and which cannot be completed without the cooperation of all. I urge you, I implore you to get behind it. Ladies and gentlemen, the earth is a lifeboat sinking under the pressures of overcrowded, limited resources and fearsome demand. We can either row it to safety together or we go down together. The choice is stark and it is now before us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was a, that was a very powerful presentation. Um, so before we begin with our, our Q&A session, uh, I just want to find out where uh, where the audience can find your book. We have it available on our website, but where, where are you able to find it? Uh, Amazon.com or uh, Cambridge University Press. Okay, excellent. And anything on social media that you'd like to share? How people can find, you know, find out more about you? And, and I'm tweeting about all of these issues every single day. Uh, basically, um, delivering the science, the, the new science that is telling us about how bad things are getting and how we can fix them. Okay, great. Thank you very much. So we're going to begin our, our Q&A. Um, we'll be asking questions of the presenter and the audience is able to ask questions as well. I just want to explain to everyone how that works. So we don't take questions directly from the chat. Instead, we ask everyone to virtually raise their hand. If you're not sure how to do this, what you need to do is click on the reactions button 
on the bottom right of the Zoom window, then click on the raise hand function in the menu that pops up. We will then take questions in, or, in the order in which they re were received. When it's your turn, we will unmute you and prompt you to state your name, where you are from, and ask your question. We ask that everyone keep their questions brief and on topic. We will then mute you. In order for everyone to get their, a, a chance to ask a question, we will be taking. We won't be taking any follow-up questions. However, if you would like to do a follow-up question, you can just go ahead and, and raise your hand again and get on the back of the line. Should should we have time? So, um, why do you think governments, countries, and individuals haven't done these types of things already? And how will we make that change? How will we get them to to change their current behavior? Well, you know. Uh... I'm of a view that the nation state, the one that we know and love, the one that has existed in the world since Napoleon, um, is actually coming to its use-by date. And nation states are no longer the things that they were. They're no longer the individual powers that they were. Why? Because money, the power of money, has migrated to the global level. Corporations are now bigger than most countries. They wield more power. They don't pay taxes. You know, So countries are actually... The amount of money that governments have to spend on their people is, is declining. Uh, so their ability to influence their own future is actually declining. Um, and as a result, you know, the quality of politicians is going down everywhere. Um, it's going down for a number of reasons. One of them, as I mentioned, people are losing their intelligence, so they're not able to choose good politicians any longer. And we're getting a class of bottom feeders coming into politics now who are out for themselves they're not interested in the country any longer. Um, they're not interested in the good of humanity. Um, they're just out there to, to, dig, to dig the gold. So the quality of governance worldwide, and I'm not just referring to democracies here. I mean, most of the countries in the world are, are autocracies. Um, they're not democracies. So, but even in autocracies, you're getting exactly the same problems arising. Lower quality of governance. And so the nation really is, is a fading dream. Um, you know, I, I know this this hurts people. They they love their flag and their anthem and their their patriotism and things like that. But that's yesterday's yesterday's you know political circumstance. Things are changing very rapidly. Um, so governments are not addressing those things because they're still obsessed with the national need. So the reason that climate change hasn't been addressed is that governments are still thinking of themselves, and they're still thinking of their political needs, not thinking of the human future. Uh, national governments do not think about the human future in any serious way. I mean, a few might, you know, government of Bhutan or Denmark or somewhere like that. But most governments are still thinking in a very selfish 19th century fashion. And they're competing with one another in a very selfish 19th century fashion. I mean, the, the, the kind of wars that are going on at the moment, Ukraine and things like that, or, or America and China chesting off against one another, these things are just so out of date. Um, you know, they're anachronisms. That that was fine in the 19th century when, when a war didn't do any great lasting damage. Nowadays, it can wipe out humanity. So it's a very dangerous thing to have these nations still stomping around with nuclear weapons. We, we need to move on from that. We need to grow up, recognize we're one people on one planet, and we help ourselves to survive or we go down together. And how do we go about enlightening the, the politicians who 
basically have a, a vested interest in benefiting off of the status quo? How, how do we get them to change their motivations? Well, the trouble is that most governments are not uh, chosen by the people, even in democracies, they're chosen by corporations. Mm-hmm. So you know, American um, uh, climate policy is dictated by the oil companies, for example. American chemical policy is dictated by the chemical companies. It's not dictated by the people. Mm-hmm. Um, the politicians are in the back pocket of the corporations. So the short answer is if you want to change that behaviour, you have to change how the corporations behave. There is only one thing that changes how corporations behave, and that's how you spend your dollar. So if you buy you know, clean, organic food, you're sending a signal to the market not to use chemicals in food. Um, and, that, and that trend is growing very, very fast now. We can see it in the world. The, the demand for organic food is expanding out of sight. Uh, because as more and more consumers wake up to the poisons that they're ingesting and feeding to their kids, you know, they're going to the supermarket and demanding more organic food. And the supermarket is getting the message or they lose money. Um, so it's only when the corporations start getting that message. It's only when people start buying electric vehicles instead of oil powered vehicles that the car companies get the message. We'd better start making electric vehicles. So really, you know, we can change the gravity. Of, of human corporate greed if we actually want to. Um, and if you change how corporations behave, you will, in this world where corporations predominate, change how governments behave as well. Unfortunately, as I say, governments don't listen to their electors very closely. They listen just enough to get themselves re-elected if they're democracies. Um, and they listen just enough uh, not, not, not to have an internal revolution if they're autocracies. And, and we must never forget that, you know, as I say, three quarters of the world's con- countries are autocracies. So, um, you know, we really have to change the economics uh, if we're going to change the politics. And how do we enlighten individuals to get involved? How do we get the word out? How do we um, get them engaged so that they are making the proper consumer choices that will then impact the corporations, which will then change how our governments function? Yeah, there's a tremendous amount of good information coming forth now from from well-meaning organisations. In America, you've got the Environmental Working Group, for example, that tells you which vegetables to buy and which ones not to buy because they've got chemical poisoning. There's lots of organisations telling you which lipstick or cosmetics to buy, which are toxic and which are not toxic, um, and so forth. So this information is now starting to pour forth. And it's getting easier and easier. So that there are apps you can get on your smartphone. You can go into the supermarket and scan the barcode, and that will tell you how toxic that can of food is, as opposed to the next door can of food that says organic on the can. Um, so, so this information is starting to come forth as a result of consumer demand. But the other thing that's happening, um, and you know, I'm on Twitter and other social media, people are exchanging information about these things at light speed around the world. So the information of what a group of of well-meaning mums in America is doing to to stop poisoning their kids gets out onto the internet, spreads around the world. There are people copying it in Africa, in Asia, in in South America. This information is moving like wildfire. So people are starting to have this global discussion of how do we make it a safer, healthier environment? And there's, there's dozens of groups, you know, um, the, the, the uh, Breast Cancer Association in America, for example, gives you very good advice about which chemicals to avoid if you want to avoid breast cancer. 
Uh, and that advice, of course, is on the internet, which means that it's accessible to everybody. And it's being shared by, you know, uh, female groups around the world. So <clears throat> this kind of stuff is getting out there now. You know, it's a slow process, but I believe that consumers are becoming much more informed uh, about the toxicity and the climate dangers involved in consuming certain products as opposed to other products. Um, <clears throat> so I, I, I do think it's starting to happen. I'm, you know, I, you just have to look at the renewable energy revolution and, and how quickly it's taken off just in the last five years. It's exploded and it's continuing to explode. And, and then say to yourself, what's the renewable food revolution going to look like? It's going to look even more exciting. You know, they will be growing food on the roof of the rest, your favourite restaurant. They will be growing food on the roof of the hospital when you've had an operation and you want to recover. They, they, you know, they will be growing renewable food, fresh, healthy food, and of much, a huge variety. I mean, there's 30,000 edible plants on this planet, and we currently eat 300 of them, right? You know, we're eating 1% of the available good nutrition on this planet, which is just ridiculous for an industrial society. So once people start growing those things in your street, in your city, in your suburb, you know, the, the, the world starts to look a much more encouraging place. And, and we have preventative medicine. So instead of everybody catching cancer, which is the state of uh, play now, and then trying to cure it with some very expensive poisonous chemicals, we, we, we put a lot more effort into the prevention of disease in, instead of the, the horrible medical model that we've got now, which is run by the pharmaceutical companies, uh, where they just want you to take a chemical that won't cure you, but it might make you live a bit longer so you can buy more chemicals. <clears throat> so, so really, I mean, that's a very cynical <clears throat> uh, approach to things. Why don't we just feel, feed people on fresh food that hasn't been contaminated and, and uh, you know, avoid that problem? And I see a lot of your sponsors are, are doing exactly that, and that's, that's what's going to happen. So, so a lot of the people speaking for the Real Truth About Health conference are in the plant-based community. I've been part of this community as well. And one of the things that is lamented is the challenge for getting people to eat plant-based. So, you know, just for their own health. So they have a vested interest in their own well-being. They have a vested interest in the health of their children and their loved ones. And that's not motivating them. How, how, do, you, how do you see people getting motivated by the, the larger picture? To, to People eat. get motivated by the same thing that's motivated them for 2,000 years or more, fashion, right? If, if more and more people are doing it, if it becomes fashionable to do it, to dress in, 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 in uh, you know, chemical-free clothing or something like that, uh, to, to, to eat vegetable foods, and uh, exotic vegetable foods, and as I pointed out, there's a huge array of exotic vegetable foods that people have never heard of, Um you know, that's what makes things catch on. People notice what other people are doing. They get told about it on the media. They become interested. Um, you know, I mean, cooking these days is one of the world's great sports. You know, I mean, the, the, the media is jammed with cooking programs and recipes in magazines and things like that. The opportunity to put good nutrition information into that is, is vast. And, and I'm finding, I'm, and I've been asked to address several um, chefs' conferences, because chefs these days, they know how to produce beautiful food, but they don't know much about the nutrition side of things and the health side of things, but they're starting to inquire about that. And they're starting to inquire about the sustainability. So was it produced with toxic chemicals? How was it farmed? What did the farmer do about it? 
So that's one thing I would say. The other thing is a comment from my life as an agricultural journalist, which was over 50 years. And a lot of people are lecturing people on the need to become vegan and to, to, to get livestock foods out of the diet. I don't agree with that because worldwide over history, livestock and plants um, produce a very wonderful synergy that produces a good variety of foods and it recycles nutrients, right? The poo from the livestock fertilizes the fields and so on. The whole African economy was based on that until about till modern agriculture came in, you know. So, so um, you know, th these are very viable, sustainable, regenerative systems. You need livestock in that system. I, I don't believe in lecturing people to, that they have to eat this or they have to eat that. That puts them off. People don't like being told what to put in their mouths. That's why people don't like big corporations telling them that they have to eat things as well, because they suspect that the big corporations are motivated by money, and they're probably right. So, you know, they don't like being lectured to eat GM food by some big bloody cornflake company. Um, so, so, you know, people are questioning that, and they've every right to do so. But we need a mixed diet. We are mixed feeders. Look at our teeth. You know, we're, 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 we're not vegetarians like sheep. Uh, we haven't got sheep's teeth. We've got wolves' teeth or dogs' teeth or something. You know, we're, we're, we're used to eating mixed foods over millions of years. But you don't have to be cruel to livestock. You do not have to farm livestock on the Henry Ford model that was developed in the United States and elsewhere, uh, where you torture livestock in large, in large barns and things like that. Um, that's a disgraceful form of agriculture. Uh, livestock should, should be able to roam free and they should be part of the natural ecosystem of a regenerative farm. If people want to eat them, fine. If they don't want to eat them, fine. And um, what can individuals do um, to, to combat the various factors plaguing this planet? Is there stuff that they can do directly? Uh, obviously, like stopping nuclear weapons, very hard to do without government intervention, like going through those channels. But what are the things that individuals can specifically do directly, as opposed to doing things to influence corporations, to influence the governments? Well, actually, there's a ton of things you can do to stop nuclear weapons as well. I mean, you know, the doctors against nuclear weapons, uh, all sorts of environmental groups and things like that uh, can, can give you a, a long list of things that you can do to try to dissuade your government from destroying the world. Um, so, so there is actually quite a lot we can do. It's a bit harder in an autocracy than it is in a democracy. Um, but really, we have to persuade them, first of all, to climb down from their current positions. But look, we got rid of, we've almost got rid of chemical weapons. It, there's been a remarkable, um, you know, destruction of chemical weapons in the last 10 years. Uh, so it's doable. It's perfectly doable. We can do it with nukes as well. We don't need 13,000 nuclear weapons to take out the human race five times over. Um, so so that, that that is doable. But what can we do? Look, there's a long, long list of things that we can do. But number one, at the top of the list, if you wanted to reduce your climate impact, have one less child. The biggest thing you can do is have one less child or have no children and buy a poodle. Why? Because the poodle is never going to want to go to Harvard. It's never going to want to own a Ferrari. It's never going to have a, a carbon footprint like a child. So if we actually want to reduce our impact on the earth, our impact in chemical terms, in energy terms and so on, Let's get the human population back down to a sustainable level. And just for everyone's information, 
the scientific consensus is that a sustainable level is around about two, two and a half billion people. So that's about what the population was when I was born, okay, in 1950. Uh, that's a sustainable population at current standards of living. Okay, so it all depends on how much material consumption you have. But basically, you, the Earth can support 2 billion people indefinitely um, at, at modern levels of consumption, provided there's only 2 billion of us. Anything else means we are into overshoot. And overshoot means we are into potential catastrophe. And that's what you've got to bear in mind, that the alternative to not getting the population down is far worse than reducing the population. So you mentioned not wanting to tell people what to do. How do you get people to, if they're inclined to have their whatever number of kids, they want three and they want three, they don't want three minus one. How do you convince people to have three minus one or, or two minus one? Well, you know, women used to have eight babies each. <laughs> I mean, back in my grandparents' time, uh, eight to 12 was a pretty common family. Um, so they've already done that, haven't they? And they've done it voluntarily. Nobody told them to, to stop having 12 children and, and, and have only two children, but, but they have done it. Now, that has been done not by men, but by women. Women have made this decision autonomously. They have decided it's much better to raise two children healthily and educate them well so that they in turn can go on and have children. Uh, than it is to have 12 children and have half of them die from preventable disease or something. So, you know, basically, if you want to perpetuate your family, your genes and things like that, have two children and raise them well, and you will have much more, you know, ancestry <laughs> or so progeny um, down, down, down the line than if you have 12 children and a lot of them die unpleasantly. Um, so, you know, we just need to rethink. We're not cave people any longer. We're not living in the medieval world when children are, are farm labor um, and stuff like that. We don't need that stuff. Ask the Chinese girls, ask the Japanese girls. In fact, ask the girls of any of the Asian countries what they're doing. And they're telling you that I'm not getting married. <laughs> I'm not having kids or I'm having very few kids. Uh, they're with it and nobody forced them to do it. It's a decision they came to autonomously. So women are leading the world out of the most dangerous period of its history when the population has expand, expanded way beyond what the earth can carry in the long run. And, and so women are doing this without asking, without consulting the blokes. Right? It, and you look at the people who are lecturing you on population. They're all male. You know, they're politicians, they're journalists, they're priests. You know, they're all fuddy-duddy old men in, in, in grey cardigans, you know, and, and they really, you know, they know nothing about it. They're obeying the instincts of a thousand years ago. They're completely out of touch with the modern world. If we want humans to survive, and I presume we do, um, you know, let's have less of them and have them survive better. So you, thank you. You, you discussed, uh, uh, you talked about a creative economy. What would a job look like in a creative economy? A job uh, might look like uh, your job now. I mean, you know, it, it, it might look like my job. It, it's an arts economy. It's a sports economy. It's a caring for people economy. You know, we're going to need a lot of carers. I, I mean, one in four humans is brain damaged now. 
it's it's shocking you know um the amount of chemicals that are coming into our brain is causing all this depression adhd autism things like that and so all a lot of those people are going to require full-time care um as as we go down or at least part-time care so a lot of people can be so instead of manufacturing things i mean think about think about basic laboring tasks you go back 50 or 100 years you know, people were digging holes in the road with picks and shovels then we replaced them with large machines then we replaced those large machines with robots you know so so a lot of the manual tasks of labor of yesteryear are now being done by machines ai is going to replace doctors lawyers journalists you name it uh, in the next 10 years it's going to be quite shocking um, when you consult the doctor you'll be consulting a computer um but basically uh things are going to change pretty pretty rapidly in that space so the creative economy is one where humans are free to use their minds our mind is the best thing is the best part of us so we'll be entertainers uh you know we'll, we'll be artists we'll be scientists researchers we'll be tourist guides you name it you know but we will not be digging things up and making things because robots will have taken care of all of that and we don't need to dig things up any longer as i mentioned we can just recycle the old stuff and we can recycle our entire cities these days cities you can grind up all the bricks and the glass and the old concrete and turn it back into new things um so you know it can be done and a lot of people will be involved in that recycling and I mentioned renewable food. Well, what a wonderful industry. I mean, 30,000 plants, that's 30,000 new agricultural industries, if you like, that can take place right in your city, growing plants hydroponically. So uh, these are very creative jobs mm -hmm. uh, and inspiring jobs. And they're not dirty jobs. You know, they're, they're, they're not miserable, they're not kind of jobs that you put your migrant labor into and things like that. Uh, because you'll get robots will do all the dirty work. Um, so, so really, you know, the opportunities for a good life, a healthy life, a caring life, and a thought-filled life are going to be much bigger uh, in the future than they are now. You talked about deep ocean agriculture. What is that? Okay, well, well, uh, basically, that's the farming of seaweeds, as we call them, sea crops. I prefer to call them, on enormous racks in the deep ocean. And what you're doing is you've, you've got a, a pipe going down you know, 500 feet, and that's pulling water up from 500 feet. The water deep down in the ocean is much more filled with nutrients. These are nutrients that are washed off the land over millennia. So all the soil that we've lost, all the, uh, you know, all, all the sewage that's been dumped in the rivers and has flowed down to the sea, all of that's gone to the bottom of the ocean. And the ocean's a chock-a-block with nutrients. And so you can actually irrigate your seaweeds with nutrients from the deep ocean. You can farm the seaweed on immense racks. You can have very large nets um, containing fish that are that are ranched extensively rather than intensively. So they're not being showered with chemicals the way that salmon and things like that are farmed today. So you're not creating chemical pollution. You're not creating nutrient pollution. These things are stormproof. They test them up in you know, hurricane uh, conditions and things like that. They float just under the surface of the sea and, and you use the, the sunlight to, to create. So that's going to, seaweed's terribly useful stuff. It makes good food. It makes good livestock feed. 
It makes you can make a t-shirt out of seaweed if you want to. You can make an enormous array of products out of seaweed. It, it you know, your shaving cream, wine, beer, you know, cheese, all of these things contain contain things from seaweed. Um, so seaweed's a terribly useful crop, but you can also use the seaweed to feed fish. And so you can farm uh, large-scale fish. Instead of plundering the oceans with trawlers the way we're doing it and destroying the ecosystem, you just grow very big nets, you know, full of anchovies or, or whatever it is you want to farm. So, you know, deep ocean aquaculture is a coming thing. It's uh, the technologies are there now, um, but the uh, the large scale, the upscaling of the development is is still ahead of us. But, you know, hell, you know, agriculture has come from nowhere in the last 7,000 years, mm-hmm. farming the land. Why should we not farm the oceans? And the nice thing about farming the oceans, if you're farming the deep oceans, you're not displacing anything else. If you farm the land, you're displacing the Amazon rainforest. You're farm. You're 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 cutting. You're clear felling Southeast Asia. You know, if you farm the land, you're 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 plowing an awful lot of trees and species under, and and terribly destructive practice. So, but if you farm the deep oceans, maybe the marlin have to move five miles to the right. You know, but the, there's there's not going to be a big displacement. And, and, and the other thing about an ocean farm is it's in three dimensions. So one kilometre of ocean you know, can, can produce 10 times the food of one square kilometre of land, of crop or, or livestock. So, so it's a much more efficient way to farm. You can produce vastly more food from a much, much smaller area because you're farming in three dimensions. You're farming into the depth of the sea, maybe a couple of hundred feet. So, uh, you know, it's, it's got many things to recommend it. And, of course, you know, no doubt all the doctors at this conference are telling people, you know, you've got to have more of those omega-3s and 6s and things like that. You've got to have more of that in your diet. Well, where does that come from? It comes from seaweed, algae. Mm. The fish eat and they accumulate omegas and then we eat the fish to, you know, not get a heart attack. So, uh, you know, it's... Uh, it, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful health giving activity. So, you know, if you want to ask me where to put your money, you know, for really powerful industrial investment in the future, deep sea aquaculture every time it's a, it's got huge potential. It's, it's going to be one of the great growth industries of the next 30 years. Thank you. So you talk about a universal agreement um, that all nations and all people would sign. How do you get people to sign this? It just seems like to get even a tiny percentage of, of people to do anything is is a huge, uh, you know, requires a, a, a huge Herculean effort. How do you get everyone in the world to sign, uh, to even know about this agreement? Well, and well, agree- if we had such an agreement, it would be much talked about on the media uh, and, and governments would be talking about it because they would be asked to, to sign and ratify it. But, you know, um, if I asked you to sign a document saying I pledge myself to work for a habitable earth for my grandchildren, would you sign it or not? Is it? I, I don't know. I'd have to read. I'd have to read the agreement and understand actually what it, what it compelled me to do. Does it compel anybody to do it? Or poisoning? You know, no no more disrupted climate. You know that that's what it would say. So all of the, all of the ten threats would be embodied in the agreement. But look, I, I reckon an awful lot of people would sign it just because they love their grandkids and they, they love the idea of an earth that is being restored 
to a beautiful natural condition beyond the the, the hell that we're making of it. And and I, I look, I I don't think you'd have to force people to sign this at all. I think that you know that the, the swim of human history would do it for you. People are very dissatisfied with the performance of their governments now. Look at these poor kids being jailed in Britain for protesting over the climate and, and, and other things at the moment. And that's where we're at at the moment, where these fascist governments are, are locking up our children because they want a future, because they want to be able to live on the planet. For heaven's sake, how mad are they? You know, and, and Britain's well, and, pretty... <laughs> and I agree with that. So how do we get those what you call fascist governments to sign and then uh, and I, I won't you know i won't presume that you're familiar with with uh, american politics but oh. here you know you know environmentalism is a dirty word with half the country so you know they think that it's a you know people think that it's a conspiracy to you know to take away their rights to take away their cars or, and whatever how do you how do you get the information to them in a way to to those people who don't necessarily agree with you who aren't going to just sign off right now how do you get them to, or how do you pass information on to them so that they don't see it as an assault on their freedom that they don't see it as an assault on their rights and that they would be inclined to support such an agreement well the way we share information in our society and in america especially is via media and social media principally but also around the family meal table and and in other places so a, a lot of this is happening voluntarily look in america Frightened corporations have, have taught Americans that it's bad for, for profit and it's bad for your shareholder dividends, you know, if you protect the environment or if you stop polluting the atmosphere or if you stop killing people with chemicals, it's bad for the environment. Uh, and, and that kind of philosophy has, has engrafted itself on, on American politics. But there are many, many highly intelligent Americans, and I presume a lot of them are listening to your conference right now, who, who know that this is not the way to go. And, you know, and, and boy, do their kids know. The kids of the world are getting a really bad deal here. They're being handed a planet in its death throes in terms of its habitability. And they're not going to be happy about that. And they're going to change governments, even if we don't. Right. So politics will be forced to change. Politics never likes changing. It, it, it always wants 51% of the people to get over, fall over the electoral line. You know, it doesn't really care about the future. It doesn't give a stuff about the future. It's only about the next election. Uh, so that's why politics and nations are yesterday. And, and, and they're gradually going to fade out of the picture. Um, but, you know, we're, we're moving to a different world now where, where the people, through this worldwide communication, through this single mind that we're forming on the planet, are going to share these ideas at the speed of light and start thinking together about what the hell have we got to do to survive in this place and to make it beautiful again. Um, and, and so, yeah, we, we will overcome the conservatism that people who don't want to change. Conservatism is a very valid point of view. Why? Because, I mean, if you, conservatism is what you trust, okay? You, your, your experience, your life experience tells you to trust this system. And you don't want to change too quickly um, because change often brings not only discomfort, but sometimes bad things. So, you know, that's why conservatism, is, it's a natural human instinct. And, you know, but it has to evolve as the planet itself is changing. The, the, the point about climate change is 
it's the physics of the atmosphere that's doing this. And there's not a damn thing that politics or money can do about it. You know, physics is going to dictate the future of the earth. Physics, biology, and chemistry are going to dictate what happens to human beings, whether we like it or not. Now, we better get with the bloody program uh, or, or it's going to become very pleasant, unpleasant. And I, I consider that there probably will be some catastrophic events over the next 30, 40 years. And these will be the wake-up call that will inspire people to action. I think the young people are already getting motivated. As we've seen in Britain, they're prepared to go to jail over it. They're prepared to go to jail in Australia to stop the coal mines and things like that. So, yes, it's happening that the new generation is, is going to reject uh, those old precepts that you described. Um, and that's going to dominate the, the political agenda in, in, in many countries, including China, India, Russia, you name it. Young people are going to change the way that things are done. So, you know, it may not be happening fast enough. That's the only problem. The only problem is that it may cause some catastrophes on the way. And given that people have a vested interest, you know, corporations, governments, the media, um, how do you combat the lies of big corporations and media um, that they would throw in, in the way of, of this kind of effort to maintain their profits and the, the systems that are, that are working well for them and not so well for the rest of us? Yeah, well, there's a famous media organization in America that's got an audience of 60, 70, 80 million people who just love being lied to. Um, and they, they've just sacked a whole lot of anchors. You all know who I'm talking about. Uh, are they going to change? No, they're not, because their business model is to promulgate lies and make money out of it. Um, but we need a world organization to call them out. We need an umpire. You know, when you've got a game of football and somebody, you know, punches somebody, you know, the referee blows the whistle and says, stop that. You, know, you go off the playing field if you do. We need a world referee that says, you are lying. You are a disgrace to yourself and your nation. Um, and, and then people can make their own minds up, whether they trust that organisation or not. Now, some people are mentally constituted that they they just like hearing the lies, you know, that they need that for their, their own sense of self-worth, whatever it is. But the majority of, 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 in, of fairly intelligent people, maybe even not so intelligent people, uh, nevertheless, you know, will listen to what's good for them. And, and, and they will think twice about obeying somebody who has been put up in lights, put in the stocks, to use a medieval expression, as, you know, a professional liar. Now, if you were doing that to your politicians, and you, there's a famous case of a politician in America who told 20,000 lies, um, you know, a lot of people will, will, will start saying, you know, what the hell is going on here? Uh, and they will question the validity of those kinds of things. It, it needs to be done. It needs to be exposed. That's what I'm saying. It's not getting the untruthfulness is not getting the exposure, but it, it's very deadly. That, that's my point. When we had COVID, for example, the lies that were circulated about masks and vaccines and things like that killed an awful lot of people, right? It was an act of murder. To lie about masking and vaccines was an act of murder. Uh, and people need to understand that. You know, when you circulate these, this bullshit, um, you are actually damaging, harming, and possibly killing your fellow citizens. So. Um, 
you're talking about creating a uh, a World Truth Commission. How would we select a World Truth Commission that people trusted? It actually, to me, sounds a little Orwellian and a little like, you know, and I apologize, it's just what it sounds like to me. Uh, and it's straight out of, um, straight out of uh, Harry Potter and the Ministry of Truth, where the Ministry oh, of Truth's job was to actually deceive. So how do you, how do you construct it how do you actually verify that something is true? You know, you mentioned COVID and there are still things that are, are extremely controversial with regard to what is true and what, what was not true at the time and how things worked. How and, and then and regardless of what's true or not, people are going to hold to what their own opinions are. So you're going to have this this pillar of truth and then half the world, if not more, are going to be like, I don't I don't agree with that. How do you go about doing that in a way that seems like it's serving the public and not deceiving the public? Okay, well, you know, we've got an international criminal court, haven't we? Uh, how do you have justice at the global level? I'm a, I know America's not signed on to the international criminal court. Well, they, that, there you go. Yeah, right. You know, but but um, most people accept, you know, if you're a war criminal and you've been around committing genocide and things like that, you'll get slung in front of a group of international justices, which are human beings of immense integrity and, and huge legal standing. And I would advocate that a World Truth Commission consists of such people. Such people would probably be scientists and philosophers of a very high level of, of ethics and integrity, uh, and, and they would be carefully chosen. And I might instance for you, for example, the inquiry into COVID's origins that um, was chaired by Jeffrey Sachs. You know, now he's not a scientist, he's not a, he's not a, a medical doctor or anything like that. I think he's an economist, isn't he? But, but uh, you know, he was he was hired as a person of high integrity to ask the question, where did COVID come from? Um, so I think you would you would you would find citizens of outstanding um, worth and 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 respect uh, to sit at the, the heart of this. Now, I don't know about the US, but in Australia, we have fact checking uh, organisations, the, the national broadcaster and the uh, a university in Melbourne get together and at election time when politicians start telling porkies as we call them pork pies lies um they basically they check it out and if the politician is found to have lied then they publicize that they say well, this is what the politician said and this, this these are the facts you know so far as we've been able to verify it and that liar is then held up to shame now look the, the new york times did this for trump um, quite a number of organisations in America are fact-checking organisations. So you've already got the machinery in place. But I'm talking about doing this on a world level for lies told about particular issues that threaten the human future. So I'm talking about the lies that are being told by the big oil companies at the moment, which threaten the human future. They're, they're purely for mercenary reasons. They want to prolong their profits as long as they can possibly go, they need to be exposed continually. At the moment, they're getting away with it because the media reports them mindlessly and without thinking about it. And politicians chant from their hymn sheet, right? So politicians get all of these quotable quotes from the oil companies and, and you know, the Homeland Society or whatever it's called. You know, these, these people are manufacturing a fictitious world that suits them but doesn't suit anybody else. And, and they're getting politicians to use the talking points. And, and that's a very corrupt process. And it has to be exposed. P 
people need to be made aware of the billions of dollars of oil money that is now being ploughed into the manufacture of misinformation. Uh, and you know, as I say, I, I, I think there are three things that can actually wipe humans out. Now, the first is nuclear weapons, the second is climate, and the third one is misinformation, because if we don't know what's going on, we're screwed. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot bigger, this issue, than, than most people think. It's not just, it's not just a, a fun or political debate or something. It's not debate at all. It's the deliberate, you know, mercenary corruption of human discourse. So getting the truth out is actually a, a lot of what the real truth about health is, is, is about. And in the 1990s, Dean Ornish, Dr. Dean Ornish did research that, that proved, it was peer-reviewed research that proved that heart disease was reversible with a plant-based diet. Most yeah. people don't know about it. The media won't talk about it. The fact checkers don't talk about it. How do you get the truth out when it's not in the vested interest of the power structure? Well, well, I, I have two, two, two answers. I mean, first of all, you have to get, the, you have to put the truth out there and, and expose the lies. But for me, as I mentioned, the thing that causes people to change their behaviour is fashion. So mm. remember that thirty thousand plants we're not eating at the moment. Right. Many of them have, have very high health benefits. Okay, that they, they've got tremendous amino acids in them. You know, they're balanced and things like that. They're they're very good for your health. They're very good for preventative health. So once you start putting these things, you know, growing them locally in your local suburb with an aquaponic system or something like that, uh, once they have become available in the supermarket or the health food shop or wherever, people start eating them and say, boy, you know, I, I tried yak on the other day. I've never tried that before. It's, it's rather nice, isn't it? People say, what's yak on? I don't know. Never heard of it before. Um, it's a Mexican root crop. Um, <laughs> but the, the, there's a ton of foods that we've never heard of, and some of them are, are very, very good for your health. So we've got 6,000 native foods in Australia that are not eaten by anybody except a few tribal Aborigines. And a lot of those are very good for your health, the amino acid balance and, and things like that, the, the, um, uh, the vitamins and, and so forth are, are excellent. So once we start cropping these things, and, and that is starting to happen, people will start demanding them. And you can now go to very high-class restaurants and pay an awful lot of money for a meal that is flavoured with genuine Australian plants and flavours that you never tried, you've never tried before. And then think of your, um, your TV chefs. You know, Every TV chef wants a new recipe to, to parade around the place. Well, 30,000 plants give TV chefs the biggest opportunity they've ever had in their entire lives, plus a health message. You know? so, so eating fashionably um, is actually fun and, it, 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 and it's healthy, you know, or it can be healthy provided we, we, we look at what's in the, in the diet. So, you know, the, 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 there are wonderful opportunities there. So I, I actually believe that that's the thing that will cause people to do it. But people are buying Tesla motor cars, not necessarily because of the electrics, but because they're fashionable. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it is fashion that is driving the vehicular revolution in the world at the moment. Um, and it'll drive the, the, the dietary revolution as well. Uh, but, I mean, if you lecture people about nutrition, their eyes glaze over. You know, so, so they're not interested. They'd rather go out and eat pizza, you know. So basically, um, you know, but make these things exciting and new. Novelty is a huge thing. Uh, and there's 
endless scope for novelty in 30,000 new foods. And there is a, there is a database uh, kept by a Tasmanian agronomist called Dr. Bruce French that lists all of those foods and how they're grown and who eats them and things like that. So, you know, I mean, this knowledge already exists. Uh, it's just that the TV chefs haven't discovered it yet. Okay, last question. How could our audience uh, get involved and, and um, join the, the, uh, the, the project or the movement that you're trying to work on? Yeah, well, I, I work with the Council for the Human Future. What we're trying to do is raise awareness of all the things that you can do in your own life. And a lot of them are good fun. And growing your own fresh vegetables organically is a lot of fun. It's a simple example. You know, having one child less can actually be more fun as well, um, if, you're, if you're a dad. Um, the, 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 there's, a, there's a ton of things that you can do, as I say, choosing all of your consumables for sustainability and health. Um, but there are so many ways that you can engage with this. In, in, in terms of climate alone, there are more than 50 actions that you can take in your own life uh, at no cost to yourself, you know, but, but with a great deal a great deal of satisfaction. So instead of saying, oh, we're all doomed, doom mm -hmm. and gloom, you can take action. And taking action makes you feel good. You know, it, it, it creates positivity. It creates a positive mental attitude, uh, it, thinking in however small a way, I'm contributing to the survival of my great-grandchildren. And, and so, yeah, I mean, in, 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 in the book, How to Fix a Broken Planet, there's a string of such advice. But you can also get that advice from a ton of different organizations, including Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth. You can get it from, from Yale University, Harvard University. You can get it from the people who are advising you about what to do about climate, what to do about organic clothing. Uh, you know, the, the advice is, is, is pouring out now and it's on social media. So it's not hard to find. Um, and as I say, this conference is a, is a wonderful example of people sharing good, sustainable, healthy knowledge. Um, and, and this is becoming a trend. And the more fashionable it gets, the more people will do it. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your time. So we're, we're going to now open up the, the mic so the audience can say thank you for uh, for your presentation and your time. Yeah, but you won't be. Thank you, Thank you so much. Thank you. 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 Thank